0: Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Aiello. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. Now, a year ago on the show, we heard from Martin Richard, who flew a Massachusetts Air National Guard F-15 Eagle over Manhattan as events unfolded. Well, this year, we're joined by another fighter pilot who was airborne that day, but as you'll soon learn, his circumstances were just a bit different. Colonel Tim Conklin of the Colorado Air National Guard joins us now to describe. His experiences on nine eleven oh one. Hello, Conk. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Jello. Good to be here.
0: All right. So before we get to nine eleven, tell me about September tenth and every day prior to that. So you were just a what run of the mill Air National Guard F sixteen pilot.
1: Yeah, I did ten years active duty, all operational F sixteens. Came on board with the Colorado Guard February of ninety eight, and I was a full timer there. So not an airline guy. So full time instructor with the guard in Colorado. Right on eleven.
0: And so, prior to again September 11th, what was your unit like? We learned from uh, Opus that last year they did stand alerts. Did the Colorado Air National Guard in the heartland of the country was it standing alerts of any kind? No.
1: So we were just a run-in-the-mill standard multi-purpose F-16 unit. Uh, we never trained to alert. We didn't have aircraft loaded with munitions. We didn't have an alert facility. We didn't have the command and control. None of that prior to
0: 9/11. Okay. Did you do deployments though? Was it that kind of guard unit? Okay. All right. And what F-16s were you flying at that time?
1: F-16C block thirty, my favorite. Oh yeah? Yeah, great airplane.
0: Well so tell us about well, if it's relevant to the story, what's any other normal day like? But then let's get into the morning of nine eleven oh one.
1: Uh so the morning of nine eleven oh one, I was scheduled to fly actually with our wing commander, General Schultz, going to the range. But if we back up one day, Monday, specifically Monday night. Monday night was the first ever game in the new Mile High Stadium in Denver for the Broncos. So it was the first game of Monday night football, and it was opening the season as well as the stadium for the Broncos. So the Monday before 9-11, I didn't get to do the flyby. I got the better deal. I got to be on the field. So we were on the field talking with the players and stuff, coordinating for the flyby at the pregame. And then once the flyby was over, spent the first quarter or so on the field, then we went up to the, uh, the Broncos have a luxury box that... Uh, the guys that did the fly by myself got to hang out in. So that was September 10th. And I remember that very well because the next morning driving into work, I was listening to the radio to hear the recap. The Broncos won. They beat the Giants that day. Listen to the recap, hoping the Broncos this year would be returned to their Super Bowl glory of a couple years prior, 98, 99. And couldn't wait to get to work just to talk to the bros about the game and how much fun we had at the game and after the game. So as I'm driving into work on September 11th, I'm listening to sports radio And I'm maybe about two minutes from the base when I hear the news break that said a small airplane has crashed into one of the World Trade Center towers. I didn't think anything of it. I was like, I want to hear about the game and the highlights and all that stuff. So and I walked in and started mission planning. And really, there was not a whole lot going on in terms of our awareness of what really had happened. We just thought a small airplane hit the towers. must be bad weather. You know, pilot got lost. It's, It's happened before. And so we didn't think anything of it until about 10 minutes after I got to the squadron. So
0: what was it that tripped you guys up to, this is more than just a lost or a wayward pilot?
1: Again, we, were, we went back to, uh, in our ops area, before we vaulted the squadron up, uh, it was a pretty open area. So we had a large, sort of like a ready room-ish type uh, setup where most of the guys were hanging out. We had briefing rooms attached to it and we had a TV going and we were watching ESPN, watching the highlights. And it was actually ESPN that had the next news break that now one of the World Trade Center towers was on fire. So that kind of got our attention. And then probably about five minutes later or so, we saw the second plane hit the second tower. Everybody in that room knew exactly what had happened.
0: No question at that point, huh?
1: We go, that was intentional. That was a hijacking, and that was a terrorist act. So everybody in the room knew exactly what was going on in the country. I would say it took... Two to three minutes, there was a page for our wing commander, again, the guy I was supposed to be flying with, who I just started the mission plan with, to call the command post. And it was NORAD on the phone. And when he got off the phone with NORAD, he turned to myself and to Homie Fogel, one of my brothers there, uh, and said, get your stuff on, get out to the flight line, get into the two first airplanes that maintenance can generate, and get over Cheyenne Mountain. So NORAD's first call after 9-11 kicked off. Obviously, what was going on in D.C. and New York occupied that sector. But NORAD, specifically being in Colorado Springs, they were not so sure that they could survive a direct plane attack. And if Cheyenne Mountain went down, then the eyes and ears for our alert mission, which we at the time were part of, that goes away. There is no command and control. So their first call to get combat air patrol was over Cheyenne Mountain down in Colorado Springs. And that call was to us.
0: Conk, I have to question you on something real quick. Wasn't the whole point of Cheyenne Mountain to be a deep underground, resistant to nuclear attack type of facility?
1: Yes, without going into any specifics. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> of course. And at the time, NORAD was housed 100% of the time inside the mountain. That has since changed. They've operated in several locations. Yes, it was designed for that. And it was designed for a direct hit on the door by an airplane. It just was not necessarily the same size airplane that they saw hit the towers in New York, I got. Okay, they were not as confident as they wanted to be in terms of if they could withstand a direct attack Understood. from a big, airplane.
0: so I think there's one thing I'm glossing over here, which is we sit here now with the benefit of 20 years of understanding and debriefing and right Monday morning quarterbacking, which is what you guys were doing prior to this. But at that time, we didn't know what was going on, right? We're a little bit stunned from the punch. There's not good information coming in. In some cases, there's conflicting information coming in. So bottom line is your wing commander turns to you guys and says, hey, we don't know what's going to happen. All we know is we need someone to go protect this facility, which is vital to our national security. So you two go get in an airplane. But you said earlier, you guys don't stand alert. So no. is it just an airplane full of fuel? I mean, what do you have on these things?
1: So uh, that's a good point. So, yeah, we, we weren't an alert unit at the time. So typically an alert unit would have X number of airplanes fully loaded with the air to air loadout. The pilots that are standing by, they'll have maintenance and weapons troops standing by in a facility close to the airplanes. There'll be command and control systems in place within the command post that you can communicate with either NORAD, Western Air Defense Sector, or the Eastern Air Defense Sector, depending on where you're at. None of those things were in place on 9-11. Essentially, because we didn't have an alert mission, we didn't have live missiles. And you don't store live missiles near where your base population is. It's on the other side of the base buried in these big bunkers. And luckily for us, Buckley Air Force Base was a storage facility for the Western U.S. for air-to-air missiles. So we had a lot of them, not tied to our unit, but they're more of a storage area for logistics. But it takes time to get them out of the weapon storage area across the base, and then now you have to load them up and the rest. That takes some time, and we didn't have time. So the reason General Schultz picked Tommy and I is we were both pretty high-time F-16 guys back then, with tours both in Europe and Asia. We both had sat alert in other locations. Okay. Both had a lot of time doing no-fly zone enforcements in Iraq. So we were familiar with the mission, just not the specifics of US alert and the rules of engagement associated with that. Of course, that all changed on 9-11. Yeah. So in order to get airplanes up quickly, the only thing that they could do is the jets that were on the schedule that day were gonna to go to our bombing range. So we were gonna shoot the gun with training rounds. So, same gun as all the fighters have, 20-millimeter cannon, Vulcan cannon. But instead of the HEI, high-explosive incendiary rounds, they were just the training bullets. They were loaded in the airplane, so all they had to do is pull the pins out, and we had 510 rounds of, of training munitions, which would have been more than sufficient to cut an airplane in half. So it was enough to do the job you know, short-term. You wanted missiles, but we didn't have time to load them. It was going to take several hours for that to happen. So maintenance did a great job. We weren't supposed to fly for several hours, and they generated two airplanes immediately. So uh, in pretty short order, we got our stuff on. Kind of briefed on the fly, and and our briefing was, let's just figure this out as we go. We don't know what's going on. Because we didn't have the luxury of sitting and watching all the news reports and what was expected. Because right after the second tower got hit, we were kind of in go mode in terms of getting airborne and getting over Shine Mountain. So Hmm. we knew kind of what happened just watching the second plane hit. But we didn't know the rest of the story and if there was more attacks coming. So it was uh, yeah. figure it out on the fly.
0: And so by the time you guys are getting going, it took some time, obviously, to collapse, if you will, all the aircraft that are flying onto the ground somewhere. Right. So what's the plan? Get you up there as all the airliners are trying to come down and then just be available in case one doesn't respond? Or, I mean, is there a plan? Again, there's the fog of war essentially here, right?
1: It is. And so what you're referring to is Katana. I had to look it up. Okay. <laughs> for really the first time in U.S. history, the FAA declared Skatana, which is Security Control of Air Traffic and Air Navigation Aids, which basically grounded the country. So any airplane that was airborne, there was guard calls that were sent out. All the airlines sent uh, you know, messages to their guys, land at the nearest suitable airplane. We had airplanes at DIA in Denver parked on taxiways. They closed runways just to fit all the airplanes because airplanes that were flying over Denver were told to land immediately. That word got out through the NOTAM system, through guard calls, and the rest. Our job was, what if one of these airplanes doesn't respond, and then the follow-on. There was obviously some big worries that there was follow-on attacks. And we weren't the only ones. Pretty much any fighter base in the United States launched what they could, specifically to get over the population centers. Our initial tasking was to get over Cheyenne Mountain, and then eventually that expanded to Colorado Springs and Denver as well. So let's see, back to your original question.
0: Well, the question was, okay, you get airborne and you're kind of making it up on the fly, no pun intended, right? We are. But you're also talking with uh, your wingman there and probably I would think going through, well, hey, if someone doesn't respond, this is what we'll do, right? And I imagine you're going to give the benefit of doubt here, pull up alongside, see if you can look inside the cockpit and get an idea of what's going on in there. Maybe some warning shots, but I don't know. I mean, for me, I wasn't in this situation. I was in Fallon at the time. And we did stand some alerts, not airborne, but that was the big question is, could you really bring down an airline? I don't mean physically, like you said, the bullets you had were more than suitable. We're military, so we follow orders. But when you stop to think about it, that still is a pretty hefty order. It is. So did
1: that start to sink in for you guys? So let me back up. So we finally get two airplanes ready. So Homie and I mm-hmm. take off. And by now, Skatana had been declared, so everything's grounded. But we didn't have a command and control organization to talk to. So there wasn't the Western Air Defense Sector or NORAD. Even though NORAD's down the street, they can't communicate with anybody locally. It goes through different systems. So when we got airborne, our first call, we live right underneath the Class B airspace in Denver. So very heavily trafficked area. Obviously, at that point, there was no traffic. So our first call was just to Denver Departure Control and said, Hey, we're airborne. And I'll never forget, the controller said, Red Eye 1, you two, are the only airplanes airborne in the state of Colorado. Thank God you guys are here. Godspeed. Go uh-huh. wherever you want, go as fast as you want, as high as you want, you own the airspace. But that got us thinking when you asked, you know, what if an airplane's not complying? Who do we talk to? We don't have command and control in place at this time. So it was just talking to ATC. So Air Traffic Control Center, Denver Center, as well as Denver Approach and Colorado Springs Approach. So we got airborne. We talked to Denver Center and said, hey, are we the only two airborne? They go, yep. There's no one within a thousand miles. We just landed the last like six airplanes at DIA. Everything else is down, so there is no traffic. Go wherever you want. You own, you own the entire state of Colorado. Go wherever you want. So obviously our tasking is to go to Cheyenne Mountain. So on the way to Cheyenne Mountain, again, homie and I are talking. Okay, so we hadn't got to the part yet where what if what do we do if we have to shoot somebody down without authority because there's no way for us to get word that that shoot-down order has happened at this point when we first took off. So, again, it was just using our judgment, and we could maybe do some turns in front of airplanes if we did see them. But there was nothing airborne, so we didn't get to that point. But we did have to figure out, though, from a tactical perspective, is our mission is to go over Shine Mountain, so just on the southwest corner of Colorado Springs, establish some sort of combat air patrol, again, without any command and control, But we can use those resources that ATC has, so the approach controllers at Colorado Springs for the low-altitude stuff, and then Denver Center for the high-altitude stuff. So we were able to build a picture between talking to those two agencies, but that picture the entire time was clean. There's nobody out here. I shouldn't say nobody. The first half hour, there's some stragglers coming into land, but they were compliant. So it didn't rear its head at that point.
0: Aren't there, those some just general aviation guys out there that don't even bother turning on a radio, let alone a transponder? I mean, so there wasn't anyone? (laughs) Funny. Yeah?
1: (laughs) Okay. So before we get to that, after our first hour, we got a tanker from McConnell Air Force Base. So KC-135 showed up for us to keep, obviously, our legs out there. Mm -hmm. And then an AWAC showed up. So now a command and control airplane Uh arrived, and they were just there. So there's four airplanes in Colorado. So the AWACS, the tanker, and us, two knock clients. So at that point, we started working it out with AWACS. Okay, we're trying to figure out the rules of engagement. And they're like, so are we. Because typically, the AWACS is not involved in the alert mission. Occasionally, they will, but not on a day-to-day basis. But at least they had communications back to the National Command Authority, i.e., the White House and the Pentagon. They basically came up with the shoot-down authority is going to come from the Secretary of Defense, uh, Dick Cheney at the time. And we have communications Ability to get a hold of them if we need to. So that was comforting in that we wouldn't have to make things up as we went. You know, we would have a legal order if we did get that order from the Secretary of Defense passed through the AWACS. So at least it was comforting that we had some command and control out there to help us out with those types of decisions. And then also with the AWACS, we were able to loosen up our cap a little bit because they were providing the big picture radar picture for us as well. So they were with us for probably about 30 minutes. And I think we had hit the tanker one time. And the way our combat air patrol was set up, um, it was centered around Cheyenne Mountain. We would focus in some of the mountain valleys that AWACS would have trouble seeing in. And the northern part of the cap was over directly over the Air Force Academy. The reason I remember that is, again, about 30 minutes after the AWACS was on station, I'm about to turn south toward Cheyenne Mountain from the Air Force Academy. And the AWACS goes... Red Eye 2, Snap 330, max forward velocity, threat to Denver, 25 miles northwest of Denver, headed to the city. That gets your heart going. Yeah, I would think. Because nothing had been flying for over an hour. It had been completely quiet, and suddenly there's an airplane that's coming out of the mountains right towards the city of Denver. So I push it up. I don't go super. The front range is pretty populated now between Denver and Colorado Springs. That would have probably given... 35 people, a heart attack with the sign of boom going out the front range on nine 11, right after this, yeah. but I'm doing 0.99, probably almost 600 knots. And I get this radar contact. Again, it's, it's about at this point, 15 miles Northwest of Denver heading towards Denver. And then homies about 10 mile trail uh, with me. AWACS is like, we're trying to identify this person. We can't do it. We are contacting the secretary of defense at this time meaning for a shoot down order. And so as I looked at the radar track and where this guy sat in relation to the Metro of Denver, there's an airport Northwest of Denver. Several of your listeners probably have been there it used to be called Jeffco. Now it's Rocky mountain regional. So pretty major GA airport on the Northwest side of Denver, kind of in the Boulder Broomfield area. And I noticed he was heading directly to that airport and starting to descend. I said, homie, could you figure out the frequency for the tower at Jeffco? And so he passes that on and we switch on our Oxfree. We're talking to AWACS on our, Primary UHF frequency, and we're talking to Jeffco Tower on the VHF frequency. So I contact Tower and said, Hey, Jeffco Tower, are you talking to this guy? And he goes, Yeah, he's up on frequency. And so at this point, I'm probably close to about 10 miles or so from him. He was probably about five miles north of the field. And I said, Hey, aircraft northwest of Jeffco, confirm you're going to be landing. And he goes, well, Maybe. I don't know. What if I don't? <laughs> As he is saying that, AWACS is on our other frequency going, we have got a hold of the sec def. We're getting a shoot order now. This is happening, you know, in two radios at the same time. Meanwhile, I'm now realizing I'm doing about 600 knots and he's doing about 110. Uh, and I'm rapidly <laughs> approaching him. So I get a visual on him and I do literally an eight and a half G spiral and then plant it right on his left wing. And he says, what if I don't land? And who are you? And I said, I will shoot you out of the sky on the F-16 on your left wing. And at that point, in a great call, this is the kind of stuff that you're just happy that people have this kind of awareness. Mm-hmm. The tower controller goes, Yo, F-16, dude, that's Bob. I know Bob, and Bob is not a terrorist. So the tower controller knew the pilot of this airplane. Bob's going, what did I do? And the tower controller said, hey, Bob, I don't know if that's his name. Uh, yeah, I call him my- Bob when I tell his <laughs> story. Yeah. He goes, the world has changed since you took off. So the backstory of that, Bob, he was a twin. It was like a King Air. And he was out. It's obviously early September. And in Colorado, early September, the aspens start to turn a really golden color. And we also start getting snowfall. And the mountains look like you know powdered sugar on them because they're kind of light snowstorms. It's one of the most scenic times in Colorado. So he had several photographers in the back of his airplane, and they're going down these mountain valleys, taking pictures of the Rockies with the snow and the Aspens turning. They had been airborne for four hours. So they didn't hear any of the guard calls. They took off before the towers were hit. And then when they came back to land, there's obviously no traffic, and there's an F-16 on his wing threatening to blow him out of the sky. But the call by the tower controller was that type of information the people that make the decisions to shoot down an airplane need to know that stuff because they don't have – it's why we have manned fighters, people, flying fighters in the alert mission because we have that link. We have eyes on. We can talk to the person. We're looking in the cockpit. We can tell this is a threat or not a threat. And obviously, Bob was not a threat.
0: Right. He was just a little sarcastic though, maybe, huh?
1: Yeah, just a little bit. But he had never reason to talk to me. But he didn't see me until I saw him the S-16 on your left wing. And he's like, that's what he said. What did I do? And I said, you didn't do anything, just land, which he did. Ten years ago, I did a um, week-long forum down at the Air Force Academy. So I was one of the guys invited there to talk. There was another pilot, a couple of command and control folks, and then several of the first responders from the uh, New York City Fire Department and Police Department, the ones that were hit the the worst. So these are the guys that were on the pile, as they call it. Hmm. Uh, So for a week, we sat with cadets and had these forums and talked about it. To your point of having to make that decision if you're going to shoot down, you know, an American or, you know, an airplane full of people, you know, that gets asked of me, would have Secretary Cheney, through the AWACS, told me to shoot this guy down because he was airborne and he shouldn't have been, would I have done it? And my response to the kid, you know, and asked the cadets, what do you think I would do? Well, Secretary of Defense, obviously a legal order, yes. I said, I wouldn't. And I wouldn't. And the reason is because I had eyes on, he wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> so if he suddenly turned rogue, Yes, I would have shot him down. But again, with that, I had information that Secretary Cheney didn't have, the AWACS crew didn't have, which was the tower controller knew this guy. And he knew that he had taken off before this happened. And he knew his route of flight. and He knew knew him personally. And to add that piece of information to us two guys flying around was huge, because that would have precluded me from really unnecessarily shooting someone down that didn't need to be shot down. Again, if he went rogue, he would have paid for it.
0: How long did you end up airborne that day?
1: For the first sortie, probably two and a half hours. We would have been on longer, but again, we just had training bullets. Mm -hmm. So while we were airborne, an unbelievable job by our maintenance folks and our weapons folks. I think we ended up generating 16 fully loaded F-16s that day from scratch. We're pulling jets out of maintenance and making sure that they were flyable and and everything on the schedule. It it was absolutely amazing because, you know, for those of us that lived through 9-11, that was a pretty traumatic event in our nation's history you know it's the first time we've been attacked here since pearl harbor that's right you talk about motivation to do your job there's plenty of that to go around that day for sure oh, so great job by our maintenance guys and our weapons guys so they drug all the missiles we own out of the munition storage area dragged them across the base loaded up all the airplanes so we uh at about two and a half hours on the first sortie, and the only reason we went back is they needed our airplanes so they could load them with, with missiles hmm. And I remember doing a CAP handoff, so a combat air patrol handoff, where our two-ship hands off the CAP to another two-ship, and we flew right over the top of them. And I remember going over the top of uh, – it was Juice and Julio. They were loaded four-by-two, so four AM rams and 2 M AM-9s, and obviously full load of high-explosive incendiary 20-millimeter bullets.
0: Because, again, we didn't know what else could be coming, right? So nope. your unit now that has been thrust into this, as, like you said, so many units did around the, the United States – so September 12th, 13th, 14th, what did it look like? Did you continue that posture?
1: We did. So at that point, we went back to base and did a quick turn. So now we took off again with a 4x2, so four RAMs, 2 M AM9 loadout with full uh, bullets as well. What ended up happening is because we were able to generate that many airplanes, and luckily as a guard unit, at the time, probably two-thirds of our pilots were airline guys. Luckily, I think we only had maybe seven or eight guys that couldn't make it back. We did have guys that you know got forced down to Kansas City that rented a car and drove back so they could be there for our response. But we had a pretty much a full complement of pilots and all our maintainers were able to make it in and did a great job. So what we ended up doing, our longer term presence was we always had a cap over Cheyenne Mountain 24-7. Then we, had, we always had a cap over Denver 24-7. And then we typically, we would split those out, I think by two or three hours. And we'd actually launch another two ship in the middle. So we would have Probably a third of the time, we had six jets airborne over Colorado for four straight days.
0: And that's not easy to maintain. I mean, for yeah. people who aren't aware, right? You need double the number of crews because you have to get rest. And then you need the folks on the ground to be the fueling. And, and you can't just suddenly skip maintenance requirements and other issues. Like you said, they, right. they really worked miracles, but you're not just going to cut corners. So,
1: right. wow. Impressive, Conk. And then you look at our leadership, too, because early on, they figured out we're going to be in a 24-7 So, again, we're a part-time guard unit on a random Tuesday that turned into a full-up turning, I don't know how many airplanes we ended up turning a day, but we're flying essentially four to six airplanes 24-7 for four straight days from scratch with airline pilots that are stuck, that are renting cars to make it back so they can be part of this. But having the foresight when this first kicked off, when it first happened, everybody wanted to come to work. But our leadership was pretty good about If we're going to go 24-7, half of you guys need to go home right now and get crews to keep that 24-7 clock going. So I think uh, our leadership at the time did a a phenomenal job in terms of managing that. And that goes for maintenance too. You can't just... Oh, yeah. And again, most of our maintenance guys are part-time guys that work other jobs. So we had to call all of them in. We had college students. They had to bring them back from college if they were local to help generate airplanes and turn airplanes. Uh, And we didn't know how long that was going to last. But essentially, it was... For our six-jet, four-jets airborne commitment was 24-7 for four days. But then we continued a 24-7 cap over Denver. I don't remember how long, but it was weeks or months that we kept two jets over Denver.
0: How did the families react to all this? I mean, on, on the one hand, we've been attacked as a nation. There's uncertainty. But now my spouse is having to go into work, whether it's, again, as a pilot or maintainer. I have to think there was a lot of you know, nerves as well at the home front.
1: Yeah. My girlfriend at the time, I was at my place during 9-11. Obviously, it was a long day for me. So I ended up turning once. And then that next mission was four or five hours. So I got back probably about eight or nine o'clock at night that day. And she was freaking out, just like most of the families were. It's like, where have you been? What's going on? And the piece that she had and a lot of the families had that we didn't, that were airborne that whole day, is that as the day progressed, they were figuring out who was responsible, that it was Al-Qaeda and that they were in Afghanistan and it doesn't take long to figure out, put the dots together. There's going to be a response, which it's one thing to be doing combat air patrols over your hometown. It's another to be deployed to do combat operations for a, probably a, a war that's did end up happening. Yeah. There's two parts of it. I think the families are freaked out, but what happened and is there going to be more terrorist attacks? And those that were married in the military, military families are worried of, hey, my husband, wife, daughter they're going to go over to Afghanistan and fight another war.
0: Which is a whole separate discussion, Conk, that we can maybe have some time. But yeah. just wrapping this up, when you think back to that day, what sort of emotions do you sense or feel or whatever? You know, looking back now with hindsight, how did you guys
1: do? You know, from that day, obviously it stands out in my mind. It stands out in everybody's mind. It was such a an enormously important event in our history, and it changed so many things. It's interesting to talk to younger folks that – didn't live through pre-9-11, how much different the world was before 9-11. I mean, everything changed after that. And again, when I got home that day, my girlfriend's like, oh my God, are you going to go to war? And I just, there was a guy on the news that just said he almost got shot down by an F-16. Like, oh yeah, that was me. <laughs> so Bob made it on the news that night. Oh, yeah. But you, you know, it's funny that the thing that stands out to me the most, well, I mean, not the most, but from an emotional standpoint from that day was... I go back to what the tower controller at Jeffco told Bob, which was, Bob, the world has changed since you took off. Because I remember on my second mission, now I'm in a fully loaded air-to-air loadout F-16. So I got six missiles and a full uh, range of gun. And I was doing the Denver combat air patrol. So we had two in the springs, two in Denver, and then two rovers. And I remember doing a turn, looking down my wing, wall-to-wall missiles at my house, wall-to-wall live missiles. And I go, I'm doing a combat air patrol over my house. What the hell has happened today? I'll never forget that.
0: Well, Conk, uh, I want to thank you for being responsive that day and for your many years and hours of support and service to our nation, and specifically the last 30 so minutes here on the show, sharing your experiences on 9-11-01, and this is the 20th anniversary, so We want to acknowledge it and honor folks like you who responded. So really thanks for everything that you did. And thanks for your time today.
1: I appreciate it. And a special shout out to all the folks that served in Afghanistan. With everything going on right now, I just want to say you guys did a great job. Uh, We rooted out Al-Qaeda, which is the real reason we went in there. So never think what you did wasn't valuable. So I think that's important to shout out to those guys.
0: No doubt. All right, Conk. Thanks very much. Take care.